Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. Thinking back to those times years ago when I was an 11-year-old boy, I remember the excitement that I felt when I would go camping with my buddies, go hang out in the woods at night, build a fire. There was something freeing about it at that time. But today I'm thinking about another 11-year-old boy. He's passed on now over 50 years ago. And he is the victim of probably one of the most notorious cold cases in the history of the state of Pennsylvania. Today, we're going to talk about Terry Bowers. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Joining me today is my good friend, Jackie Howard, executive producer of Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Jackie, what can you tell us about Terry? Joe, this is one of the strangest cases I have ever come across. And we do come across some strange cases. But Terry Bauer was killed in his sleeping bag. But his body was not found in his sleeping bag. Terry had been on a camping trip with his Boy Scout troop, Troop 275 from Darby's Blessed Virgin Mary Parish. Two dozen boys and six instructors traveled on this camping trip in an open field on church grounds. It was about 200 yards from the church, St. Basil the Great Church, there in Chester County's East Pikeland Township. In the early hours of the morning, Terry was stabbed four or five times in his sleeping bag. His body was found just a few feet away from the other boys. They had circled their sleeping bags and blankets around a fire ring for the night to keep warm. When they awoke the next morning, they found a bloody scene and Terry Bowers was dead. You know, Jackie, the the thing about this that strikes me is the close proximity that Terry was to all of these other people and, and young boys. And, you know, you think back and I think back with my experiences with camping when I was when I was a young kid. And one of the things that you do is you build a fire ring, which is what they did in this case. You know, it was outlined with stones and they had big pieces of of wood and kindling and that sort of thing to start the fire. And they essentially set up their, their, their sleeping area, their sleeping bags. There were a few of them that were going to quote unquote sleep out under the stars. In other words, that's a, that's another way of pointing out that we don't have a tent for you. So you're going to sleep outside. And it's cold. This is, you know, this is Eastern Pennsylvania in April. It's, it's not like you're, you're, in July here. So it's, it's chilly. You want to be as close to that fire as you can. So their feet were like pointing toward the fire. The folks at home will just imagine that that firing is like the hub on a wagon wheel and the spokes of the boys kind of extending out from it. But and Terry was just, he was kind of out of alignment and away from the boys a few feet, but not too desperately far away. And in the morning when uh, the first kid woke up, the first fellow scout that was there, uh, he noticed that Terry was outside of his sleeping bag and that he was he was bleeding. And reports say that this young man that, that first visualized 
Terry laying there on the ground, he he ran up to the scoutmaster's tents, which they had individual tents that they were sleeping in. And he pulls back the flap and says, hey, Terrence, Terrence is outside of his sleeping bag and, and there's blood. And you can imagine it's created a panic and, you know, these scoutmasters and everybody else suddenly became aware of what was going on. It's not it's not just simply that you had a young man laying out there outside of his sleeping bag. But the fact that these boys, and trust me, these are boys. They're witnessing something that is so gruesome and so gory. The fact that one of their little friends is laying there and he's got blood issuing from his nose and his mouth and probably from these wounds that he had sustained. Joe, let's look at this fact by fact, because there's some really interesting things. First, as you said, the boys were around a ring of fire, which means that they were in pretty close proximity to each other. So, number one, how did no one hear what was going on, surely at the first stab, this child would have screamed. You know, out of all the, you know, I think that probably out of all of the various causes of death that we examine, uh, Jackie, you know, there's this this idea that, you know, what would generate the most pain? And if you're, if you're sound asleep, all right, you're sound asleep, and suddenly the sleeping bag that you're that you're nestled down in, you know, trying to stay warm against that April, that April evening, you know, the, the first time you might not necessarily be fully aware of what has happened to you. That knife is buried through those layers of, of the fabric of that, that sleeping bag and down through your undershirt and into your flesh. You might not have an awareness then, but suddenly you know that there's pressure. And suddenly you pop open and it didn't just end with one stab wound, Jackie. Uh, you know, reports are saying that, you know, that Terry sustained either four or five wounds. And this is very important, very, very important. Four or five wounds that involve both his back and his chest. So that tells me a lot as an investigator that Terry had an awareness, Jackie. You know how I can determine that? Well, it's the fact that if he's if he has an awareness of it, you're going to attempt to kind of thrash about and defend yourself. The question is, was he stabbed in the chest first and then he kind of rolled over in kind of a, an attempt to protect himself and ball up? And then he stabbed in the rear uh, or in the rear of his shoulder or into his uh, posterior chest, what we refer to as your back. Um was he stabbed through there uh, secondarily? But either way, you're going to have a sensation of pain. This is a very, very painful thing. You know, people have cut themselves at home that are inside of, in, in the sound of my voice right now. You know what that's like. But can you imagine having a knife buried in to your person like that? So you're right. You are when you say, how did, how did other people not hear anything? How could these other boys that were laying in very close proximity. Remember, we're talking about, we know it's close because you've got a centralized area with that fire, that fire ring right there. Everybody wants to be close to it. It's cold out that night. I don't know about you, but when it's cold, I want to be near the fire. So they're going to be in approximate, they're going to approximate each other in, in their relative positions there. So how, how was it? How were his screams muted or muffled in some way so that no one else had an awareness of what was going on that night? What type of injury 
did he sustain that would have resulted in bleeding from the nose and mouth? You know, this this is key uh, because, you know, that's the first thing that that this young man noticed that bore witness to Terry's body in the first place. It came out that when this knife penetrated uh, Terry's chest, now we don't know if it was, and just so folks understand, when forensic pathologists say chest, you, you need to be very careful with that because they won't say back and, and front most of the time. They'll say anterior chest. All right. If everybody at home will put your hands on your chest, they'll say that's your anterior chest. And now take your hand and put it up on your shoulder in between your shoulder blades right there. They refer to that as the posterior chest. So we don't know which knife wound exactly uh, uh, created this fatal injury, but we do know his lung was nicked. And so anytime you have uh, a lung that is nicked like this, and you're still, keep in mind, he's still alive. He's still alive. He's not dead. There will be this this moment where he will have what are referred to as agonal respirations. That means he's he's struggling to breathe. And this is a horrible thing to think about because he's he's literally laying there gurgling. Jackie, he, he's gurgling in his own blood and the blood is filling up, not just the area, the space around his chest, which are what are referred to as the plural areas, but actually within the lung itself. And so when this happens, there's kind of this regurgitation of blood that occurs. It's getting into your airway. And as your body begins to shut down, you're spitting this blood out. We've seen evidence of this in very famous cases we've covered. I think probably most famously in the Travis Alexander case is not urging anybody to go and 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 take a look at that case because you can see the crime scene images of where he aspirated onto the sink. And that's what Terry would have done, Jackie. That's probably why that kid saw so much blood because Terry, if you can imagine this precious little 11-year-old boy, just imagine that for a second. He's laying there and his lung has been nicked and he's spraying blood out of his nose and mouth. You have the power of this of this exhalation of air that your lungs are trying to, you know, trying to process, you know, trying to process for oxygen. And you're you're expelling the carbon dioxide. And in this case, you're expelling the blood and it's coming out in kind of a fine mist, if you will. And it's a, it's a horrible situation. And again, we think about the sound that's being made. So you've got, first off, you've got him being stabbed and he's going to be reactive to pain, that initial impulse of pain. He's going to have an awareness. But then you have him laying there probably for a few seconds, Jackie. He's laying there for a few seconds gurgling. He's laying there for a few seconds spitting up blood. And all of us have had a, a violent reaction to something in our life that has caused us to throw up, or uh, maybe we've had a lung infection or something like this along the way, and it causes you to cough violently. It's hard to disguise that, isn't it? So how how was the sound muted? I think that's the big question here. How did they slip under the radar? How how was there not an awareness uh, among this group of young men that were surrounding Terry at that time? We also know, Joe, that Terry was found outside of his sleeping bag. His thermal bottoms, pajama bottoms or thermal type sleepwear were found folded in the bottom of his sleeping bag. Terry was found wearing only a T-shirt, a quilted long sleeve, and his brief style underwear were pushed down around his ankle. However, 
as sexual assault was ruled out. Yeah, you know, most of the time, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, you know, you think horse, right? Um, and that that's that's a really striking thing when you think about it. You know, he's wearing probably little white jockey underwear with an elastic band. And when they observed his body, my understanding is he's kind of laying on his side at this point outside of the bag. And the bag is like pressed down beneath his feet, but also still around his ankles there are these jockey briefs that are pushed down. And, you know, you have to begin to think about as an investigator, well, how did these briefs wind up down around his ankles? Was he attempting in some way to extricate himself, you know, while he's in the throes of all of this pain and he's spitting out blood and all of this, trying to climb out and maybe the briefs slid down, but they're going to slide down past the knees at this point? You know, how do they wind up actually down by his ankles? And I think that that's, that's very curious. And then something that, that kind of captured my attention, Jackie, and you, you, you rightly said just a second ago regarding these thermal, thermal underwear pants that he had, they were neatly folded in the bottom of the bag. And you know what really is, is kind of touching about that is that that's, that's a mama's touch, Jackie. That's a mama's touch. You know, this boy... Terry was 11 years old. This is his first camping trip with the scouts. It's his first camping trip. He didn't go out a lot. Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the worry on the part of the mama? So she's got him thermal underwear and she's neatly folded them like a mama would, right? And she's she's probably said, now look, baby, I've got these pants down here in the bottom of your sleeping bag. So when you slip these on, you can slip them on inside of the bag because I don't, you know, for boys in particular, you know, you don't, you don't go around taking your clothes off in front of other, other guys when you're young like that. You know, you may have been a little bit embarrassed and mama was aware of that. She folded these things up and told him that, look, son, when you get in your sleeping bag, it's time to go to good night. You, you simply take off your pants or whatever it is and you slide these on out of view of everybody else in this way it'll keep you warm and you know and i've often thought about those as i've been studying this case for about two years now i've i've often thought about the touch that was there the fact that these were neatly folded and that's the way they're described in the base of this back you know he had like a t-shirt as you mentioned and also this thermal kind of quilted thermal jacket that he had on. And folks will imagine it's kind of a diamond weave kind of thing that's going on that probably looked a lot like a liner for a jacket, for a heavy jacket that that he would have had there. And he's wearing that. And again, that goes to the environment that he's in. They all have an awareness that it's cold. You're around the fire. You're in a sleeping bag. You've got access to thermal underwear. Not only do you have a T-shirt and your underwear on, but you also got a thermal jacket to keep you warm as well. It was, I'm not going to say it's a hostile environment, but it would have been made it uh, very uncomfortable if your skin's exposed and that sort of thing. It was cold that night. so fired up about this case. I tell you, it's it's something that has literally been hanging in the air for over 50 years. Over 50 years since Terry has passed on. Well, don't let me say passed on since he was brutally stabbed to death, surrounded by fellow scouts out there at that scene on that church property. Joe, it bears being mentioned again that Terry Bowers was stabbed 
through the sleeping bag. So I want to talk a little bit about how this scene would have been processed because he was taken to the hospital. So his body was moved. Lots of people were there and no one was there to say, hey, boys, don't touch that. So processing this scene had to be a forensic nightmare. Plus, you also have to look at the time frame. 50 years ago, things were a lot different now. So let's start with the fact that sleeping bag that had four to six stab marks in it. What do we do? Yeah, that's the key. That that is the key here because he was, in fact, we've established that he was stabbed through the sleeping bag. So this blade, as it, it before it entered his body, it passed through uh, these this multiple layers of the bag itself, and so that's where we begin. That bag is central, is central. But what you had said is key. He was removed by ambulance from that scene and taken to a hospital. So that means at some point in time that bag was probably moved. The bag was moved away. I wonder if his underpants went with him or if they were removed as well at that point in time, maybe left behind. I don't know. I have no idea and I have no way of knowing. So for all practical purposes, that the bag along with Terry's clothing are two of the most monumental pieces of evidence, physical evidence that we have from the scene. But when you remove Terry from the scene, when you place him into the back of an ambulance and take him away to the closest hospital that was probably 25 minutes away, you create a huge problem here because we lose what's referred to as context at the scene. Uh, when you have a body that's in place, the uh, we in forensics use the term in situ, which means in place. Um, when the body is still in situ and is there, and it's surrounded by footprints and blood and uh, clothing, and in this case, a sleeping bag and the fire ring, you can kind of begin to picture it, if you will. And you can talk about relationships of distance and everything. But once the body is gone, it's gone. And there's no way to go back and document it appropriately relative to uh, measurements and, and, and all of those things that we do at the scene. So all of that is kind of, uh, again, you're already starting off in the negative at this point as an investigator. Now, the question is, how was Terry's body handled once they removed him from the scene and taken away? Because when his body left, he was taking physical evidence with him. Were there scuff marks on his body? Uh, was there dirt on his body left behind from rolling around the ground? Because that's going to be key. Uh, was there gravel on his body? Say, for instance, a little uh, what we call pea gravel, tiny gravel that was on his on his body that maybe didn't originate from that same location. So there are all these kind of forensic tiebacks that we're looking from, from a soil standpoint, from a fiber standpoint. And they had all of this stuff back in 1970 there. It's not like they're completely primitive. But the way that they process scenes back then was completely different than the way we do it now. The scene security was not as robust back then as it is now because they just didn't look at the world and look at the world of forensics uh, as microscopically as we do now, you know, where we treat everything almost like we're going into a surgical suite, you know, with with our Tyvek suits on and hair covers and all that stuff. They, they didn't do that. They didn't put shoe covers on. Many times they wouldn't even wear gloves, if you can imagine that. So it's a completely different world as far as documentation goes. And then, you know, you throw into the mix here, you've got a herd of kids. 
I mean, you've got kids, they're excited. And I don't mean in a good way. They're terrified. They're away from their parents at this point in time. Remember, this is a camping trip. So the scoutmasters are in charge at this point in time. They're having to manage control over these kids. And and the scoutmasters are not thinking about valuable forensic evidence. They're thinking about how do we get these kids calmed down and get them herded away from this location because they're not thinking necessarily about protecting the scene as much as they are protecting the mines, you know, trying to keep them away. And from what I understood, these kids were essentially taken to uh, St. Basil's parish, which this event occurred on the property of this Catholic church and taken into the sanctuary there and just told to sit there. Now, there are a lot of stories that are floating around Jackie in regards to this, in regards to uh, how the scene was processed and how it was handled. This is one of the more interesting ones. And I don't know if folks at home recall this, before the before the days of all of these electronic communication devices we had, when we were kids, we would go off and our, our moms in particular would be part of what's referred to as a phone tree. I don't know how many folks remember that, of a phone tree. And that's everybody had everybody else's number and there were certain people that were assigned to make phone calls, to let let folks know that something was happening. Well, in this case, there's some evidence that states that someone ran up to the church and initiated the phone tree. That means that they called one of the parents back in Darby, which is where this scouting troop came from, Darby, Pennsylvania. And then all of a sudden, the switchboard lights up. And you've got all these kids. They hear the word murder. They know that their kid is out there. Can you imagine how panicked they were? So they hop in, in their cars and they they proceed to get there very quickly. And it has been stated over the years. Now, hold on to your hat with this one, that many of the parents arrived before the police ever arrived. And I can tell you, the parents are not interested in uh, the continuity of evidence or scene protection or anything. They want to get to their kid and they show up at the camping site. Now you've got overlay of all of this fiber evidence that's out there, footprints, all of this stuff. You know how we talked about the blood that was issuing from Terry's mouth and his nose earlier. Well, what if that's been eradicated? If if your kid is laying out on a dirt surface or on a grassy surface, they've been bleeding out. People are stomping all around this area and they're compromising the evidence and they're not doing it in a malicious fashion. Keep that in mind. It's just that they didn't know any better. All they knew is that they wanted to get to their kids and make sure that their kids were safe. Because the one thing they knew, Terry Bowers wasn't. He had been slaughtered there that night. Joe, we know that Terry was killed with what is believed to be a folding knife, a one-edged blade about three inches long. You're in the middle of a Boy Scout troop. I don't know of a Boy Scout yet that doesn't carry a knife, especially into the woods. They are always prepared. That is their motto. What do we do about the knives? I mean, how do we find out if any of these weapons were what was used to kill him? Well, that's the key because, you know, you begin to think about, you mentioned this idea of a dimension. You mentioned one dimension in in uh, in, in particular, three inches. That's not a real robust knife. But if if folks at home can, if you don't know what a Boy Scout knife is, and they still make them. They've, they've got the scout seal emblazoned on the side of it. And depending upon how much money you want to spend, you can get it kind of lasered in there. Or it could be a plastic one or whatever the case. But it, at any rate, they do have 
metal blades on them and they're three inches in length. And we're not talking about like a, a hunting knife or like some kind of uh, a knife that a special operations soldier would take. It's a folding knife that can go into your pocket. Think about a Swiss knife and it's got everything on it. You know, you have corkscrew, you got scissors. Uh, some of them even come with magnifying glasses, if you can believe that, tweezers, all kinds of stuff, implements that you can use in the field. And so, what had happened at that particular time when they gathered all of these kids together, they collected, allegedly collected every single knife that these scouts had on their persons. All right. And what we have heard and what has been implied is that these knives were quote unquote tested. They were actually tested and uh, forensically. And I, th I guess my question would be, well, what what exactly does that mean when you say that a knife has, in fact, been tested forensically? Well, some of the things that you're going to look for are I'll give you a real a real easy one to kind of chew on. If you've got if you've got a, uh, a three inch knife, a folding knife, one of the things that you're going to look for, say, for instance, that's going to set that knife apart from every other knife is what if the metal on the edge of that knife is nicked in some way. Maybe the kid was out in the backyard and he was, you know, uh, trying to make cuts across a really hard surface like wood or rock or something like that. And it, it nicked the blade. Well, that's going to be a specific, a specific forensic tie back that makes that knife unique. Well, they collected all of these knives. The thing about it is, is that they state that there was no connection between any of these knives that any of these kids had. And they're not just going to be looking at the, the metal surface. They're going to look, if folks at home, if you've ever seen a folding knife, one of the things that happens is that when you deploy the knife, you open it up, okay, and you take the knife and you stab somebody with it. Well, when you pull that knife out, which let's keep in mind, Terry was stabbed four to five times. They're, they never could be quite clear about that, but he stabbed four to five times. So you're inserting it multiple times. What's happening? Well, the, the knife blade is passing across bone. It's passing through tissue, through skin and, 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 uh, and muscle. And then as you withdraw it, that it's coming out with tissue and blood that the blade itself has essentially been inoculated with. And you have the tissue and blood that will actually get into the hinges Jackie, it'll actually get down into the hinges. And guess what you can do with that? Well, back then they didn't do DNA, but we did do blood typing. Okay. So if you had, if, if, uh, if Terry had a specific blood type, which we know that he did, they would check that knife and first off, determine if the blood that was found on that knife was in fact blood. And then secondly, if it was in fact human blood, and then to what human did it belong? Well, the only way back then you could really match it up was what was called ABO blood grouping. You know, A, O, B, A, B, A, B, pause, A, B, neg, those sorts of things. And that's about as far as we could narrow it down. Then you would look for tissue that's caught up in there. Any kind of tissue. It could be skin. It could be little fine hairs. It could be muscle tissue. And then you have to incorporate that into your examination of Terry at the autopsy room to try to determine, in fact, if if he was missing some tissue, if there were marks that were that were consistent with, say, that hinge mark on the or, or those hinges on that knife, if it had left a specific impression behind. And, and so those are the types that you're looking for. But at the end of the day, they're saying, you know what, there was no connection between any of these knives that were recovered. And Terry's body.
there was a pond nearby. And as the investigation into the culprit progressed, that pond was drained and searched. So what were they looking for? Were they looking for the knife? Yeah, they would have been looking for any type of item that could have been used as a tool in this particular case relative to um, any kind of injury that could have been generated, anything that that may have had blood on it. Say, if the perpetrator was wearing a particular type of clothing, for instance, um, maybe they tossed that clothing. Maybe they weighted it down with rocks, hoping that it would sink to the bottom. So you're going to look for a T-shirt or a pair of pants or something stained. And of course, you're going to look for metal objects like knives. And it may not have simply have been knives that would be, I don't know, say, for instance, like uh, the Boy Scout knife. These kids could have been bringing butcher knives from home for all we know. They're saying the injuries were consistent with a three-inch folding blade, which is very specific. Oh, and the blade was a single-edge blade as opposed to a double-edge blade. So they're looking for anything at this point in time. And back then, they didn't have a lot to hang their hat on forensically. So, yeah, they're going to go to the trouble at that point in time from a proverbial standpoint of pulling the plug, if you will, on on the pond and draining all the water and then get down to the bottom and search through all that muck and mud and everything that would have settled to the bottom to see if there was anything of evidentiary value that could tie back to Terry's death. And at the end of the day, they didn't find anything of significance relative to uh, anything in that pond. Police at this at this point in time, and remember, this is the state police that are handling this. Uh, it's not the local constabulary, uh, the local sheriff's office. I think that they probably had elements out there, but the state police kind of kind of took this thing over at this point in time. As a matter of fact, Terry's case still rests with the cold case squad for the state police of Pennsylvania at this point. After all these years, after all these years. But back at the beginning, how, how would they have gone gone about sorting through all this? Because it's vast. As a matter of fact, it, it makes me exhausted just to think about it because it's not like Terry's death was contained in the living room of a home, Jackie. His, his death was uh, actually occurred out in a wooded or semi-wooded area uh, that you had high grass. You had low brush. There were a few trees around. You had multiple surfaces out there that, you know, were in various different types of consistencies, some of it more rocky than others, mud, this sort of thing. So it, it just from the beginning, even with the technology we have today, it would have been a difficult scene to have handled. How much more so over 50 years ago for these folks? So where do you start? Well, you're going to start with these boys. And according to what we understand that the police had done is that they brought in a polygrapher, somebody that operates a polygraph machine. And they put each one of these kids, they put each one of the scoutmasters on the polygraph machine. Now, keep in mind that it doesn't, you know, they, as we all know, you can't use it in court, but they're looking for some place to begin because at this point in time, they have no one to point the finger at. 
So they go through this list. And again, they vetted these kids based upon what the polygraphy examination uh, revealed. And according to reports that we've received, um, it revealed a big fat zero. There was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. I think nowadays, you know, when you're working a case like this and something that kind of has a bit of a sexual connotation, let's keep in mind, we've got an 11 year old boy with his underwear down around his ankles and he has been stabbed multiple times. That sounds like a frenzied, very angry kind of case we would begin to look for sex offenders in that area. We would want to know, is there anybody that targets uh, young boys in Terry's demographic? You know, that they, you know, these sex offenders actually have a, a group, if you will. Um, they're, they're not going to, uh, if you have a group of people that, that want to attack young boys that are 11 years old, most of the time, they're not going to go out and try to find 11 year old girls to attack. This is what they zone in on. But the bigger question you have to ask here is, well, why this 11 year old boy? Why Terry? And keep in mind, you had all manner of young men that were there at that camp that night, that completely surrounded Terry, that were all around him. Why Terry? Why Terry Bowers? Out of all of these boys that were there that night, why did they hone in on this young defenseless kid that was that had been sent off on his first camping trip? Now, some of the information that we do know about Terry is that apparently he wasn't feeling well when he arrived. As a matter of fact, there's some indication that one of the scoutmasters may have taken Terry back into town at some point in time during the day because he had complained of a stomach ache and bought him what's refer what they used to refer to as a broma seltzer, which is essentially like an Alka-Seltzer to help settle his stomach and, and brought him back to camp at that point in time. He didn't want to participate um, uh, in some of the things that they were doing. He's a little bit lethargic and this sort of thing. There's even indications that Terry may have been involved in some kind of mischief around the camp or some kind of mischief prior to going out um, out on on this camping trip, which, you know, was he acting out? Was he trying to resist going on the camping trip? Did he not want to be a part? Was he being bullied? Was he doing something that that was an, an, an indicator that we would see now today as an indicator of reaction to being bullied by somebody in the group? That if he cuts up enough, if he acts up enough, that they'll they'll say, well, we're not going to take him with us. Maybe it's a natural defense mechanism. I don't know. But I think that all of those all of those little channels should be explored. And for me, as an investigator, since they have ruled out any kind of sex attack per se, and I still have questions about that, you know, how far did they go with that? How far did that examination go? Keep in mind, none of the official reports have ever been released in this case because it's a cold case and it's not it's open. It's an open cold case. So we don't have access to a lot of the things and a lot of the insights at this point in time. So how far down the road did they go, uh, you know, kind of checking the box to say, no, this wasn't a sex attack? Because there are very specific things that we do at autopsy relative to that. We, you know, with with males, we do uh, rape kits just like we do with females. We scrape under the fingernails. Uh, we look for injuries involving sexual organs as well uh, as 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 the anus. Uh, we'll photograph that very very thoroughly because it's just in, as important. 
keep this in mind. It's just as important to demonstrate negative findings as it is positive findings, because that's something else you can check off the box. If his backside was not traumatized in any way whatsoever, then that means that mm, maybe this didn't happen. But did they check the rest of his body? Was there any indication that there was ejaculate that was present on his body? Because you have certain sex attacks that involve non-penetrative events where individuals uh, will stand over an individual after they have killed them and they will, you know, perform sexually over the body, not ever touching the body. Was there an attempt to harm his genitalia in any way? Well, that's, that hasn't been demonstrated, at least to our knowledge. So I think the, the big question is out of all the little boys in the world, out of all of them, why would this vicious person, why would this vicious person, and I will call them an animal, why would this animal attack an 11-year-old boy? Why would he go after Terry Bowers, to the best of our knowledge, that has never harmed a hair on anybody's head at this point in time in his life? I mean, how much harm could he have done at this point? Why did they zero in on Terry Bowers? So many really good questions there, Joe, that we all would love to know the answers to. Given your forensic specialty, getting those answers comes down to your specialty. So knowing that this is outdoors, dirt, sand, leaves, twigs, fibers, firewood, ash. There are so many things. You you can't pick up every piece of the great outdoors and bring it in. I mean, most everyone has an image in their mind of a crime scene investigation. You know, we've, we've all seen on television the little markers that they put out. You know, when we have a mass shooting, you may have 50, 60, 70, 80 of those little yellow markers noting evidence that has to be tagged, bagged, photographed, marked, you can't bring everything of the great outdoors indoors. So how does that hamper an investigation? How do you know what to keep, what not to keep, what's important, what's not important? Well, I think I think one of the biggest things for me is I've heard them talk all about collecting knives. Well, knives are all fine and good, and you have to do a comparison. You have to do an examination. You know what else I want, Jackie? I want every stitch of clothing everybody was wearing out there. I don't care if they have to go home wearing togas. I want every stitch of clothing. I mean, pants, underwear, shoes, socks, jackets, gloves, everything. I want every bit of tent material that was that was used and utilized that night. I don't care what they have to do. Maybe they can go buy everybody pajamas to go home in. It makes no difference to me. But, you know, the, the thing about it is this kind of intimate, and trust me, this is intimate contact, Jackie. You got somebody that's, that's probably kneeling over this little boy and burying a knife into him five times, five times. It's not like they did this in a vacuum. They're burying this knife into this young boy's body multiple times. So if that's the case, you're going to transfer some kind of evidence onto your person. I think they really missed the boat, and that's something they were capable of doing back then. And I don't understand why that was not collected. I also want all of the shoes. I think I mentioned them briefly. But let's just say, for instance, and I've seen this happen multiple times in cases involving uh, sharp force injuries. When an individual is stabbed or sliced, you get a tremendous amount of blood staining that goes everywhere. And think about your feet as kind of your, your supporting foundation, which it is when you're standing. And when you're kneeling to a certain degree, if you're kneeling, you've got one knee down probably to leverage yourself and then the other foot is there. 
not only am I going to be wanting to examine the footprints that are out there, I want to see the tops of the shoes. I want to see if there's any blood specks that are left behind either in a dynamic state or in a passive state where blood has dripped onto the surface of those shoes. But guess what? It's all gone now. Every last stitch is gone now. Now, one of the things that I have heard in this case is that potentially Terry's sleeping bag was actually retained, was actually retained and held. And the police may, in fact, still have it in the state laboratory, you know, what, what could they do with it at this point in time, this far down range? I don't know. I mean, one of the things that, that would get me kind of excited about this is if they had the willingness to move forward with some kind of uh, forensic genealogical study. If there's still DNA evidence that's capable of being assessed on the surface of Terry's bag, now you would expect to find, you know, remnant of, of him on there. But with sharp force entries, this is kind of interesting. People don't realize how brutal these events are, not just for the victim, but also for the perpetrator, uh, because many times the perpetrator will injure themselves. They'll cut themselves. And so if you have this kind of passive cut that that occurs, who knows? I don't know how closely they examine the outside of this bag. Maybe in some way the perpetrator dripped a bit of blood onto the surface of that bag. So all of those options are on the table and they need to be explored because, you know, this family, his, his brother and his sister are still alive. Jackie, you know, the tragic thing about it, you know, his dad, Terry's dad, and folks might not know this, his, his, his poor father died just within a decade of, of Terry's death. And his, his daddy was well under the age of 50. He was a young man. And, you know, I've often thought the man probably died of a broken heart. And his mother just died a few years ago. And she was um, had a she had a, a diminished capacity at that point in time. I think she was suffering from uh, dementia or something. And she died not, you know, as the crow flies, not too far away from where Terry was actually murdered. She was in a home. And again, that, that goes back to this idea. And she, you know, to the day she closed her eyes, she never had answers about Terry's death. Uh, 11 years old when he passed away all these years ago. And we still don't have answers. We still don't have answers after all this time. And I think that this is one of those cases that demands them. So here is the true question now, Joe. Can this case be solved? One of the biggest obstacles with this case, Jackie, is the fact that nobody is getting any younger. Nobody. You figure the Scout Masters back in 1970, you can do the arithmetic. Folks at home, folks at home can do the arithmetic on this. The Scout Master, let's figure if you were 19 in 1970, how old the Scout Masters would be. And not all of them were 19. There were a couple of guys that were, you know, uh, 30 years old in that age range. So many of these people have passed on. I think about half of these individuals that were out there have passed on at this point in time. And, and just so folks understand, a lot of the guys that were out there, this this event really scarred them. It scarred them down to their core. And, you know, you would hope that anybody that had information that was there that night, that fateful night when Terry was butchered out there, that by now they would have come forward. But, you know, it's interesting, Jackie, cases like this, the slightest bit of information can turn a case it might be a deathbed confession for all we know. Somebody that just wants to get this off of their off of their chest 
you know, before they, they go off into the, the afterlife, they want to clear their conscience as, as it is. Um, you never know what's going to happen and you never know what's going to happen combining that probability with the advancements that we're making in technology. I just hope that the state has retained enough evidence that was, that was uh, gathered at that scene that uh, something can be done with it and further examination can be applied to it. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. <laughs>